You can take your Bibles this morning, open them once again to the book of James, to the fifth chapter of this great letter from the Lord's brother. Today actually marks our 20th time together in this study, and next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll finish it. Finish the book of James by looking at the last two verses, but for today, we get the privilege of working through James 5, verses 13 through 18. Now, if you've never looked at this text, it's a pretty interesting text. Uh, It's one where the big idea, you know, like the main theme of it, is about as clear as any other part of the New Testament because it's mentioned in every one of the six verses. But this is a text that also has a couple verses in it that are about as confusing and debated as any other text in James. So I want to start by just reading it. So you can try to figure out what is the big repeated idea in all six verses, and so you can take a guess at what you think all the questions are about in this passage, all right? So let's take a look at James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, so there's our text. And just from reading it, what do you suppose is the repeated big idea of that passage. It was in all six verses. That would be to pray, right? If this passage is doing anything else, it's calling us to pray. Is anybody out there suffering? Pray. Are you feeling good, encouraged, thankful, joyful to be here today? Sing praise and prayers to God. Are you sick? Get God's people to pray for you. Just pray. That's what this passage is about. But what do you suppose is the debated part of this passage? Which verses in particular do you think cause some confusion for people? That would be James 5, verses 14 and 15. I want to look at those again. Is anyone among you sick? What should you do? Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over you anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise you up. And if you've committed sins, you'll be forgiven. Now let me ask you a couple questions to get us thinking about this, okay? What sort of situation do you think James is describing? Like what sort of scenario do you envision where you would need to do those things, okay? Second, have you ever done this when you were sick? were really weary, 
or maybe even depressed or something? Have you ever called for the elders of your church to come and pray over you like this? Third, do you think our elders have done this or would do this if asked? Do you think that I would go to someone and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and pray for God's healing and restoring work? What do you think I think about this? And then lastly, if you yourself were really struggling with a serious sickness or weakness in the days ahead, would you ask us to do this? Or if it was your family member or a brother or sister here that you love, would you be encouraging them? You know what? You should do what this text says. Okay? Now, to be honest, I'm only scratching the surface of the kinds of questions you can ask about this, but it's just to get us thinking at the outset here. And we haven't even mentioned yet that there have been, I think, some, some pretty serious abuses or misuses of this text. Uh, two examples that come immediately to my mind. Uh, first are the many abuses of this text by so-called faith healers who will send you anointing oil so you can be healed of whatever is going wrong in your life for just the right donation amount. Uh, the second uh, misuse is the misuse of this text by the Roman Catholic Church as they try to find some grounds in the Bible for a particular sacrament that they call extreme unction. Uh, that's one of what's often called the last rites in the Catholic Church where typically when a person is on their deathbed, a priest comes so that the person can confess their sins once more, be prayed for, be forgiven of all their sins before they die, especially what they call venial sins that the person didn't have a chance to do penance for. Some of you have grown up in this, have maybe seen your own family members uh, do this sort of thing at the end of their life. Uh, both of these are misuses of this text. And, and my, my point so far is just to illustrate how many questions you could ask about this text that are, that are good questions. And we're going to address several of them today. But we also have to be careful that we don't get distracted from what is the main point of the whole text, which is actually something everybody agrees on. And that is that this text, more than anything else, is a call to prayer. So with that, with that said, I want to go back through the text, just kind of verse by verse, beginning in verse 13. We'll, we'll just study it together. Is, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anybody cheerful out there? Let him sing praise. Is anybody sick? Let, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. The basic gist, in any and every circumstance, the right response for us to make, the right first response is to pray. He asks, is, is anybody among you suffering? Okay, we've been in James for quite a few months. I mean, after reading the letter, especially the verses right before this, where he describes in detail the horrible suffering that many of them have gone through. Some of, his, some of the church has been killed. Okay? And he asks, is anybody out there suffering? That would be like everybody would be raising their hand, you can imagine. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to pray. If you look at the text from the last couple of weeks, what would he have said? Is anybody out there suffering? He probably would have said, you need to, you need to wait patiently. 
Jesus is on the way. But today, he says, is anybody out there suffering? Pray. But he also says, is anybody out there cheerful? Doing well? Feeling encouraged today? Maybe that's you. What should you do? Sing. Praise to God. Offer up prayers of praise. And then he asks, is anybody sick? Weak, discouraged, weary, beaten down? Here's what to do. Call for your elders so they can pray for you. But the bottom line, in every circumstance you find yourself in, you're in a good circumstance to pray. The spiritual need that we have for prayer has often been compared to the physical need we have for breathing. I've, I've always found that comparison helpful. Like as necessary as breathing is for your, for your physical health, so also is prayer for your spiritual health. Whether you're suffering and sad today or encouraged and happy today, weary and wounded, the right first response is always to pray. And if you're struggling to pray, like to breathe, if you will, call on the church to pray for you in your stead. Now let's look a little closer at that scenario, okay? Verse 14, where somebody's sick and really needs prayer. Okay, look at verse 14 again. Is anybody sick out there? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then this response of what God will do through it, okay? Now again, what scenario do you think James is thinking about? What do you envision? Where's the person at? What's going on in that person's life when they would do this? What what comes to your mind? You probably need to picture something. I I think working through a few questions here will be helpful, all right? The first is to ask simply, what does it mean to be sick in the text? Is anybody among you sick? Now, of course, when we hear sick, we think of physical illness. And I think this is very likely what James is talking about, okay? Physical sickness. I, I, I lean that way, that that's what he's talking about. But I, I should mention that this same word, translated sick, regularly refers to weariness in the New Testament and other texts in this time period, including spiritual weariness. Okay? So, like, think of someone that's going through what's been called in the past melancholy, what is often called today depression. Okay? There are actually really good arguments for both views. And I mention that because sometimes when we hear sick in the translation, we only think the only option here is physical sickness. But I, I think the text could also be referring to spiritual weariness, depression, something like that. Um, and, and I actually don't know that it matters that much what James is thinking about first, because I think he would give the same counsel, probably. If, if you're really struggling with physical sickness, you need prayer. But if you're struggling very much with spiritual weariness, if you're beaten down, you need prayer just the same. Call on the church to pray for you. Call on your elders to come and pray over you. Second thing is, I I want you to notice that his counsel is specifically to call for the elders of the church. Now, that does not mean you shouldn't call for anybody else. 
But it is to say that James is saying you need to look to the church for help and to your spiritual shepherds in particular, who should be, among many other things, they should at least be men of what? Of prayer. And ask them to come and pray for you. Okay, so in this situation then, all right, this person who's probably sick or maybe like spiritually very beaten down calls for the elders, maybe others too, but calls for the elders to come and then, all right, what are the elders supposed to do for this person? What does the text say? It says, come, pray, anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what's he talking about? All right, for, for one thing, James is talking about real oil, okay? Maybe something like olive oil. Uh, I don't think he's talking about some like symbolic oil, like of the Holy Spirit or something. He's talking about real oil. And he's encouraging the elders to anoint this person in need with that oil. The question then is, why? Like, why do that? Now, there, there may be especially in the first century, there may be some physical benefit associated to doing this. But I I think the main reason, though, is to set the person apart for God's attention. It's real oil, but it's like a symbolic setting this time, this scene, this person apart, this moment, and this person's life, and in the life of the church for God's special attention. All kinds of stuff was anointed in the Jewish world. And what does anointing something or someone with oil do? It sets it apart, sets them apart, consecrates them for God's special use, special attention. So the elders come, they anoint the person with oil, which visually and for the person tangibly sets that person apart. You see, the whole time is being marked out as a special moment in the life of that person, that struggling person, and in the life of the church. And then what do we do? We pray. That's where the main point, that's the main focus. We cry out to God for help, to do what we cannot do. We cry out to him to heal, to restore. And notice, we do all of this in the name of God of the Lord, which means at the very least that we do, we do all of this with Jesus's authority behind what we're doing. And whenever we say we're doing this in the name of the Lord, it, it, and, or we're praying in the name of Jesus, it, it always implies that we are doing this in conscious submission to whatever Jesus wants to do, okay? And what does James say God will do in response? That's in verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. In short, God will work through the prayers of his people. Now, that verse, verse 15, raises more questions. See, there's all kinds of questions in this text. Tough questions, like the big one, is this a guarantee of physical healing from whatever sickness right now 
if we do this? What do you think? Does God guarantee physical healing now from all our sicknesses if we just pray the right way? Well, if we look at the New Testament, so start first broad. If we look at the New Testament as a whole for guidance, we realize that God did heal his people sometimes, now, and at other times, God did not heal the sicknesses of various individuals right then. For example, just think of Paul. He would be a good example here. Paul certainly was involved, when you read the New Testament, in the miraculous healing of many people. But then, the same guy talks about his own ailment, his thorn in the flesh. And what does he say? He says, I prayed specifically about that three times, pleading with God to remove it from me. And what was God's answer? No. Instead, God told me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength will be made perfect through this weakness of yours. We also read of Paul leaving a friend, a close friend, sick in a certain city. We hear him tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul clearly wasn't healing everyone he came in contact with. And so my point is simply that the New Testament as a whole helps us see that God can and does heal, but also that God in his infinite wisdom does not always choose to heal right now. And, and, and I want to just step aside and say, by the way, if we're talking about Christians, okay, that's the only question we're really talking about. Is God going to heal us right now? That's the only question. Why? It's because ultimate healing from all sin and sickness is absolutely guaranteed for every Christian at the coming of the Lord. Jesus bore the curse on the cross for us and he has secured for you complete and glorious freedom one day from every part of the curse. So when we pray and we ask God for healing now, we're simply asking God, would you be pleased to do now what I know you will do one day? And the New Testament as a whole shows us that God can and does that sometimes right now, but also that God in his infinite wisdom does not always choose to heal right now. And I think that as you look at James, what we have to come back to in this text is that we do this whole thing in the name of the Lord Jesus. And on the one hand, that should give us hope and confidence when we ask. Because we come not in our own name to the Father, pleading our own merits and that we deserve this. No. We come in the name of the Lord Jesus, pleading his power and his merits. But at the same time, like I said earlier, when we come in the name of Jesus with our requests and petitions, that means we are consciously confessing that we're submitted to Jesus' will, whatever it is, and we trust him. He can see better than we can see. But as we look at the text, there's at least one more big question, 
And that's about what James says about sickness and sin. Like, did you think about that when you read it? He says, if the person who's in this sick condition has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And that raises the question of whether sicknesses are due to specific sins, right? Now, James is clear, I think, in this, if you think about what he's saying, that a person could be sick or weary and it not be due to any personal sin that they did, a specific sin. That's why he says, and if the person has committed sins, that person will be forgiven. In other words, it's not necessarily the case. And the Bible is very clear that not all sicknesses we face are due to any specific personal sins we've done. We can remember the story, who would come to mind, who was mentioned last week in the text right before this? A really good example of this. Job, right? What did all of his friends think? Job, if all this bad stuff is happening to you, then you must have done some really bad stuff. And they were wrong. They had no clue what God's purposes really were, what what was going on between God and Satan, and how God was showing something through Job and his endurance. At the same time, in the text in James, he is suggesting at least that some sicknesses, some weariness is connected to sin. And Paul says the same thing, for example, when he talks about how some of the Corinthian church had been partaking of the Lord's table while shamefully dishonoring Jesus and his body. And he says, some of you have gotten sick because of this. Some have even died. The point in James is that whether the sickness is or isn't due to sin, we need to turn to the Lord in prayer. And the encouragement is that if sin is a reason for the situation, you can be assured that if you're turning back to the Lord in faith, you'll be forgiven. Now perhaps we're thinking, all right, this seems like a very specific situation. Maybe this is helpful if I ever get really, really sick or something. But what exactly is the application if you're not in this situation right now? Which if you're here, for the, I would imagine you're probably not in this situation. So what do you think the application is and for the church as a whole? And that's what verse 16 says. Look at it. Therefore, and this is to the whole church, everybody, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. This is the application for everybody. We all need to be confessing our sins and our faults and our struggles to one another. Why? So we know how to pray for each other. Why? So we can be healthy, spiritually, healthy and whole. Now, I'm not saying we should tell every person every sin we ever do, okay? But we should be more open with at least some of our brothers and sisters about the real struggles we face and the sins that beset us. Why? It's so that we can pray more knowledgeably for each other so that we all can be spiritually healthy and whole. How can we bear each other's burdens 
if we do not know what they are? How can we help each other in the fight against sin if we're never willing to open up to one another about the sins we're trying to wage war against? From my own experience, it seems to me that this just is not done very much in the Christian church. The ones I've been in. Why do you think that is? There could be lots of reasons. Some of this, I think, is the fault of churches in somehow communicating that the church is only for the holy, for those who have it all together. And so you don't want to tell anybody you don't have it all together. Because church is only for everybody that's got everything together. And that is simply not true. The church is not comprised of people who've arrived. The church is always made up of, at best, growing Christians. At best, right? No one here has arrived. I'm confident of that. Nobody here is without sin. Not one of us. And the church is for us in our best days and in our worst days. Perhaps another reason we often struggle to be honest with each other about who we really are, about the sins we're really fighting, is actually due to our own pride. We're afraid to be known because it's humbling to be known. But as James has assured us, God gives grace to the humble. Perhaps some of the other reasons, though, why we might struggle to be honest with each other I think as I think of this text, is that maybe we don't, we don't actually believe the rest of verse 16. Look at the next phrase. That the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I wonder if we really believe that. That the prayer of any righteous person has incredible power And here's what I mean. If I I believed that the prayers of my brother or my sister actually accomplished incredible things, perhaps I would be willing to be more open with my brothers and sisters about my struggles because I would long for them to pray about it. How powerful is the prayer of a righteous person. James gives one final illustration in the book. Verse 17, it says, look at Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain. And for three years and six months, it never rained on the earth, in that, in that area at least. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I mean, can you imagine? Three and a half years of no rain in response to the prayers of one man. A man that James says was just like us. A man with a nature like ours. And and probably what he's getting at is that God did not answer these prayers because of how awesome Elijah was. I think that is the point that James is making. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Yeah, he was a great man. He was a prophet. But Elijah was a man with a lot of major highs and major lows in his life when you read about him. Big victories and times of big fear, great discouragement, 
running. He was a man like us. Inconsistent. <laughs> a man with a, with a nature like ours. And Elijah's prayers weren't powerful because of how awesome he was or because they were incredibly worded prayers or something like that. That's not why God listened to Elijah. In fact, the prayer James is talking about, that it wouldn't rain for three, year, three and a half years. Do you, know, do you know where that is in the Bible? It's not even mentioned. I mean, think about that. Is look at this prayer and what God did, and it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's maybe implied because he prays at the end of the three and a half years. And just think about it. I mean, James could have pointed to some incredibly rich, deep prayer from the Old Testament where you're like, I could never pray like that. And he points to a prayer that's not even mentioned just because his point is Elijah just prayed. That's all he did. He just prayed. And look at what God did. For three and a half years, it never rained. And then he just prayed again. And God sent the rain. Prayer done in submission to God accomplishes great things. Not because the prayers are great or because the prayers themselves are great, but because God is a great God. I think too often we think great prayers from great people accomplish great things. And so if I had a great person to talk to, maybe I'd be more open with them. But James argues more like ordinary, ordinary prayer from ordinary people accomplish extraordinary things. Because God is an extraordinary God. As we bring things to a close this morning, I want to put a few things before us. First, I want to come back to that scene where the elders come to the sick or weary person. As, would we do that as a church? The answer is yes. As one example of this, which was actually just before we started Richfield Bible Church, we did this at Eden Baptist Church for our sister Sarah, shortly before she went to Mayo Clinic for surgery. And my point in mentioning this is not just to highlight that God worked in a powerful way through prayer to preserve and bless Luke and Sarah and all of us, for which we praise him. But I also want to highlight the beauty of that moment, of the church coming together in this way, to anoint with oil, to set a dear sister apart for the Lord's attention, and then to turn all of our hearts together at the, at the very same moment in such an incredibly focused way to the very same God and to offer up our prayers of desperation in faith and submission to the God who is there. I still remember those moments very well. We, could, we would certainly do this as a church for those who are sick, weary, depressed, in need of concerted, focused prayer. Second, I want to remind us, though, that this passage is about far more than praying only when things are horrible, okay? When they're really dark, when we're in dire straits at rock bottom at the end of our rope, this passage is a call to the church to be a house of prayer to the church to be a people of prayer, to you, to be a man or a woman of prayer. In any and every circumstance, the right response of the Christian is to pray. 
It ought to be as natural to us as breathing. And it's just as necessary. And I want to ask you to pray with me that our church will be a house of prayer. I was thinking to our vision statement as a church, which many of you have seen, but it just, it just lays out like what we're aiming for as a church, what well, we hope that God by his grace would do. The third part of that, the third aim, is that we would be a church that is prayerfully dependent. And here's what it says. We long to be a church which works hard in prayer, where prayer is understood to be as vital to our health as breathing is to our physical well-being. Where our planning, strategies, decisions, and efforts are first matters of prayer. Where members find it normal, normal, to seek out other members in order to pray with them, to pray for them, and to ask for prayer from them where its leaders devote themselves not only to the ministry of the word, but also to prayer, and where the entire body is stretched in its commitment to pray and learns of the joy, privilege, and necessity of communion with God. We're three years in. I hope we're progressing towards this. Would you pray with me? that that'll become more and more of a reality for Richfield Bible Church. And then lastly, as we prepare to take of the Lord's table in a couple minutes, I want to turn our hearts directly to Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we offer all our prayers. First thing I want to say about Jesus, I point you to, is how he prayed. Has there ever been a person more dependent on the Father than Jesus. He was a man of prayer. Jesus prayed alone. He prayed with people. He prayed for people. He prayed when things were going well. He prayed when things were going worse or were harder for him than we can imagine. This was the constant practice of his life. He was a man of prayer. And you think about that? If Jesus, the very Son of God, recognized his own continual need as a human being like us to pray, and depend on his Father, how much more do we need to pray? And the last thing I want to think about in regard to Jesus is this. Jesus died so we could pray. He died so we could commune with him at the table this morning, and so we could draw near to him and through him to God in prayer all week long. We, we were once, Paul says, far off. But now we've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. It says, for through Jesus, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. That's from Paul. He, author of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he's opened up for us. And since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who's interceding for us, in whose name we come, let's draw near to God 
with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. See, Jesus died so we could commune with him here at the table this morning and so we could draw near to God through him all week long in prayer.